Certainly Moses could have said those words as he approached the burning bush. And as we continue in our series on Exodus, um, we remember that Moses was drawn as he was shepherding his sheep by this bush that burned without being consumed. And he realized that surely the Lord is in this place. And he began to discover more of who God was, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, reveals his name also to be uh, Yahweh, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, the God of being, the God of existence, God of everything. And he also discovers that this God who met him in the burning bush also had a purpose and a plan for him. He was going to send him back to Egypt to lead his people out of slavery and into freedom. Moses, of course, says, well, who am I to do this? And God assures him that I will be with you. And also he gives him some gifts that will be of use to him in the confrontation to come. And that's where we find ourselves this morning in Exodus chapter 4. We're going to learn what gifts God gave to Moses. So I invite you to listen carefully and listen well. For this too is the word of the Lord. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous, like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may not believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the giver of gifts. We thank you that you have gifted us this day with the breath in our lungs, with the joy of life, with the chance to be together with one another, we who participate and share in your one body. And we thank you that you are with us, that your presence indeed is in this place. We pray that you would, once again, and once more, send your Spirit upon us, that our eyes might be opened to you, 
that our ears might be open to hear what you have to say, that our hearts might be open to receive you, so that we too might burn with your holy fire without being consumed, that we might also testify of your presence everywhere we go. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So anybody here like a good story? Yeah, I like a good story too. Um, I'll tell you one I wasn't planning to tell you yet. I just popped in my head. That's dangerous. But um, <laughs> so, you know, usually at Prayers of the People, uh, we have our litany of prayers, and, and they're very comprehensive. There's something that we do, uh, prayers that we didn't make up, prayers that the church has prayed for centuries. And among those prayers, we pray for safety for those who travel by land, sea, or air. And then we say, Lord, have mercy. You know that prayer, don't you? Um, well, this past week I was at the beach and um, I felt very prayed for by all of you because I drove down there by land and then Leslie's cousin Eric has an airplane and I got to fly it, <laughs> which I probably would not have done if not for your prayers. <laughs> and then Leslie's dad... Um, took us out on a boat, and we did some, some deep sea fishing. And half the crew got sick, and I, and I did not. So again, I attributed that to your prayers. Uh, so by land, sea, or air, uh, it, was, it was a good week um, and a good time together for our family. So I'm, I certainly uh, was looking forward to this morning and realized as I was heading here this morning that I've missed you guys too. So um, it's good to be back together. Um, but I think we all love a, a good story. Our entertainment industry is built around this, largely. Uh, the books that we read, uh, the movies that we watch, or binge watch, some of you, right? We just get stuck on a series and we just watch it straight through. Um, good stories have a familiar shape to them. And I, we've talked about this a little bit before, but a good story has a main character, has a hero or a heroine who we typically encounter going about their daily life without anything special going on until the inciting incident, the moment that changes everything. It's like the aliens show up or um, uh, Alice plunges down the hole or something happens, good or bad, that suddenly opens up a new world for the hero or heroine that they don't really know anything about. Um, this new place and space is going to offer up various forms of challenge and struggle and difficulty. And that outward trajectory is mirrored by an inward change that has to take place. And so over the course of time, the character changes, faces struggle. It culminates in a climactic moment against sort of the bad guy or the villain or the character's worst fear or whatever it may be and eventually that's sorted out and there's the appearance of happily ever after so there's the there's the large story arc and we say that in the course of these stories they they follow a familiar pattern because we have an author and a perfecter of our faith that's how hebrews describes jesus as the author he is the word he's the one who speaks creation into being and so our smaller stories mirror this bigger one. Now often, early on, when the character has gone from ordinary life into this 
whoa, things are very different kind of life. Typically, there's someone who comes alongside the main character. It's usually an older person or someone at least more experienced with the intricacies of this new place and the challenges that the hero will face. And they come alongside and they give wisdom and knowledge. They pass that along to the characters. So they know what to expect. But they also typically give gifts that will help the character negotiate this new world and the challenges ahead. That's where we are with Moses this morning. But before we get to Moses, I thought, so that we're not just talking about theories, maybe let's just like look at a couple stories and familiar um, uh, narratives that we could look at, look at and see that developing. So um, let's just start with, with King Arthur. You know, King Arthur, his Knights of the Round Table, um, you know, Sir Gawain and Sir Lancelot, and they get into all these adventures and so on. Well, um, King, and maybe you're just familiar with like the Disney version. You know this movie, The Sword and the Stone, right? And we see Arthur as a young boy before he becomes king and goes off onto all these adventures. We see him as a kid, and his, I think it's his uncle or someone has taken him in. He's the ward of an estate. And he just scrubs pots and gets all the bad chores. We see him there. Life is ordinary. Life is typical. Anybody else do dishes in your house? Yeah, yeah, okay. So we know what that's like. And so he's just going about ordinary life until Merlin shows up. This wizard or sorcerer or whatever. He shows up and he begins to open him up to a different world where maybe the Disney version, the dishes wash themselves. You remember that part? All right. Um, he ta- he, in, the, in the movie, he changes him into a fish. So he learns about things beneath the surface. He turns him into a bird and he flies around and sees things from a different perspective. He's giving him wisdom and knowledge of things he didn't know. And that's helping to form him. Eventually, he ends up um, at this jousting tournament. And whoever won the tournament was going to become king of all England, right? Well... Ward's there as a squire to his cousin, who's a bit of an oaf. Um, Arthur loses his sword, doesn't remember to bring it, and panics and runs off into the village trying to find a sword somewhere that he can use. And of course, what does he find? The sword in the stone with an inscription that whoever draws the sword out of the stone becomes king of all England which this little skinny kid does and takes it back. And they're like, where'd you get the sword? And he pulled it out of the stone. Everybody goes and the movie ends with Arthur enthroned. And the sword, interestingly, is the mark of his authority. He's the only one that can pull it out. But it also is the tool by which he will go on in his series of adventures throughout his life and throughout the legend. The sword that will grant him victory over his opponents. Um, anybody remember the name of the sword? What is it? Come on. Excalibur. That's right. That's right. So it has its own story too. Um, so there's, there's King Arthur. Um, I've been on this you know, little kid story kick. wonder why. And so the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe again. Right? It begins, the kids, the, London's being bombed, World War II. So they go out to the home of this professor in the countryside where they'll be safe. They're doing kid stuff. They're playing hide-and-seek. It's ordinary, everyday life until the inciting incident occurs, which is the moment Lucy, the youngest, stumbles through the wardrobe into a new world where she is disoriented. 
The animals talk. There aren't people. They're looking for sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, and it's just this totally new place. Eventually, all the kids end up there. They don't know what's happening. Mr. and Mrs. Beaver take them in and clue them into the bigger drama that's at play. The white witch has taken over and called herself queen. It's winter, but never Christmas. But Aslan's on the move. A confrontation is looming. He's going to come back and restore things. And they know Aslan's on the move because shortly thereafter, after these two elder folks bring them on and grant them more knowledge to help them negotiate the days ahead, they hear the jingle of bells and a sled comes with reindeer and a big bag full of presents in the back. And who was driving it? Yeah, it was, you know, Santa, it was Father Christmas. And he gives them what? He gives them gifts. He gives Peter a sword. And he gives Lucy a bow and an arrow. And he gives, or Susan a bow and an arrow. He gives Lucy a healing ointment. And these will be the tools that they use later when the great battle comes to emerge victorious. It's the same thing. Again, uh, when I was little, I used to read these books by Louis L'Amour. Anybody know Louis L'Amour? Uh, Western author, right? I read all of them. Um, yeah, <laughs> I was a lot of fun as a kid. Um, so I was reading Louis L'Amour Western books, and this familiar pattern emerges there too. The kid, something terrible happens. His ordinary life is upended. He's out on his own, but somebody comes along beside him and helps him and teaches him what he needs to know. And they always go out to a fence and set up cans and bottles. And he gives him a six-shooter and teaches him how to use it, right? And eventually he bestows upon him not only the skill, but also the six-shooter itself. And this is what he's going to use later down the road to rescue the town, um, or to save the ranch, or whatever it might be. These wise figures come along and give knowledge and impart gifts. Um, Luke Skywalker is living on a planet way off in the corner of the universe, and he doesn't know much about the great battle going back and forth between the Jedi and what's the other bad bunch? The dark side, whatever. And so they're, they're going back and forth, and lo and behold... Who is their only hope? Obi-Wan Kenobi, the wizened Jedi master, the experienced one who comes alongside Luke, shows him the ropes, and bestows upon him a sword, a, a lightsaber. These are the tools that he will use to emerge victorious down the road. You see how this over and over and over and over and over, you can just pick a story and it's always there. Where we find ourselves today with Moses is right there at that moment when Moses was going about his ordinary day as a shepherd, right? I mean, he's just herding the sheep. The inciting incident was the bush that burned without being consumed. And the voice that spoke to him from heaven, remove your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. The confrontation with Almighty God, but this time it's not some wise human person who comes alongside him and gives gifts. It's God Himself. wonder what kind of gifts God would give Moses as he sends him off to a confrontation between good and evil to lead a nation out of slavery and into freedom. What kind of gifts would God give? Did you hear them? They're kind of odd, honestly, weren't they? You know, can you imagine Moses being like, okay, okay, God's going to be with me. He's going to give me some gifts. Okay, this is going to be good. 
And he's like, what's in your hand? He's like, what? it's a staff. He says, throw it on the ground. He does. It turns into a snake. He says, pick it up. And he does. And what good is that going to do? Right? And then he's like, oh, yeah, stick your hand in your jacket. And he does. He's like, pull it out. It's got leprosy all over it. He says, put it back. And, he, and it, it's healed. He's like, what good is that going to do, God? And then finally, if that weren't good enough, he was like, well, when you get there, get a bucket of water and just dump it on the ground, and it'll turn to blood. Was Moses maybe just like, could you have come up with something a little more helpful? They have an army, right? Yeah. So, it's hard to understand the gifts if you don't understand the bigger story. You see, Moses is being drawn into a world, into a confrontation, into a conflict that he doesn't actually know a whole lot of, about yet. And the gifts themselves aren't just about making Moses a superhero. That's not the kind of gifts that God typically gives to us. The gifts are meant to reveal who God is. The gifts are meant to um, participate in the action that God is taking to lead his people to freedom. So let's look at them a little more carefully. Because when you understand that the backdrop to this is a divine conflict, divine warfare between Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, the true God, the God who is the source of all being, the God who created everything that is, the God who can say, I am who I am, the confrontation between this God and the false gods of Egypt. The gods who enslave, the gods who murder infants and drown them in the river of the Nile, the gods who heap burdens upon the people, the gods of slavery and death opposed to the God of being and goodness and life. All right, so that's the backdrop. So the gifts that Moses receives aren't just to make him, you know, a super warrior. They're meant to help us understand what's going on in the bigger drama. So here they are. A staff. It's sort of a comic moment. Um, you know, Moses is like, nobody's going to believe me that God appeared to me, right? So God's like, okay, well, what's in your hand? He says, a staff. He's a shepherd. He says, well, throw it down. It turns into a snake. And what did Moses do? Did you catch that? He ran away from it. Like, how, how silly is this? God's like, okay, throw your staff down. He throws the staff down. It turns into a snake. And Moses, you can hear him screaming and running. Now, if you were to walk into Pharaoh's court and see him sitting on his throne and looked atop his head, what would you have seen? A serpent, a hooded cobra, the sign of his authority and rule. Right? And what happened in Egypt earlier when Moses was there? Pharaoh discovered that he had killed the Egyptian. Pharaoh had reared his head and Moses said what? He ran screaming into the wilderness. 
the same thing happened. It was like God was saying, hey, you remember this? And then God says, take the snake by the tail. Moses does. It turns back into a staff. What's about to happen? What symbolically is represented in this gift? The serpent, Pharaoh, who has chased Moses into the wilderness, is going to become in the hands of Moses now. He doesn't have to run. He's going to go face him. He becomes in Moses' hands now a tool that God will wield to lead his people into freedom. Because Moses is going to come and he's going to shepherd them with that staff across the river into the promised land. You see how it's the... What happened is going to be reversed. Um, we can see this playing out a, a little bit differently when we look at um, uh, Pharaoh's heart, right? So Pharaoh's heart, we see, we haven't gotten to this part yet, but Pharaoh a couple times will harden his own heart. When God says, let my people go, um, he says, yeah, I will. And then he hardens his heart and he says, no. But in the end, in the last instance, God hardens Pharaoh's heart, even as the serpent was hardened and becomes a tool that God uses. So that, I mean, the battle between the true God and the false gods is not really a fair fight, is it? Um, Pharaoh, the one who looks like he wields so much power, is the one who will be used to God's purpose. That's what the first sign represents. The second one, Moses sticks his hand into his cloak, pulls it out, it's leprous, he's places it back and it's healed. The leper's hand, I believe, represents Israel itself. Now, if you have leprosy, uh, your hand is literally falling apart. It's not usable. It's not healthy. It's not what it ought to be, right? So too, Israel has been trampled down and oppressed and, and, and crushed, and it's falling apart. It's not what God intends it to be, but we see here that the God who can heal a leprous hand is also the God who can heal a nation. And that promise is being held forth. And finally, um, we see sort of an ironic presentation. If they don't believe those signs, take the water from the Nile and dump it on the dry ground and it will turn to blood. You know, the Egyptians worshipped the goddess of the Nile. They understood her to be a fertility goddess because every year the waters would flood the Nile Delta and that's what would allow, in, you know, in North Africa, crops to grow plentifully. It's what allowed a civilization, at one point the greatest civilization in the world, to, to grow and to flourish in that place. And so they worshipped the river. They thought of it as a source of life. And yet God reveals that truly it's a source of death. It was already bloodied with the male infant children of an enslaved people. And so God reveals the truth of that. I mean, I don't know that I don't know this part, but I would assume the reason Pharaoh had the male children drowned in the river instead of killed by some other means is that there was a sacrifice being offered 
to this God. But what we learn is that God, the God of Israel, is a God of life, not of death. He reveals the death that undergirds the whole society there. But his intent is to bring life. So we see these gifts, which are given, um, as signs meant to open us up to the truth of who God is and the truth of what he's about to do. There's a promise inherent to each one. But each of these in their own way also point us to Christ, don't they? You can look at the serpent on the ground and recognize Pharaoh's headdress. But if you go back a little early in the Bible, there's a serpent there too, isn't there? In the garden. Uh, Symbolic of the devil, of, of Satan. And Jesus is the one who comes and conquers the devil. The one who comes and tramples the head of the serpent. How? Well, he's our good shepherd, right? He's the one who conquers, not by pouring out the blood of others, but by pouring out his own blood, which becomes a source of life for us all. He also does it, he conquers the wily and wriggly serpent by going to the hard wood of the cross. So too does Jesus, when he comes, um, comes and he comes with healing in his wings, right? He comes and he touches the leprous and the lame and the blind and heals them. And finally, we see um, that uh, he is the God who is victorious even over death. Whereas Pharaoh and the gods there wanted to kill, Jesus wants to bring life. And he does that again by way of his own blood. Begin to see how these things are fitting together. The gifts that God gives have meaning. Which opens me up to asking, well, if God is doing this for Moses, what has God done and what is God doing for you? Like what gifts has God given you? And how does God want you to use them? And maybe they're not the gifts that you would have picked, actually. Because it wasn't up to us anyway. Maybe you wouldn't have picked a staff that turns into a snake and back again. But that's what God gave Moses. I don't know what gifts God has given you. Uh, There are a few sort of broad gifts that we might look at. Um, It's the easiest way, uh, the easiest thing that probably requires the least effort uh, is financial gifts, right? Perhaps you are a person who has financial means, That's one way that we can receive gifts from God and use them for the upbuilding of his kingdom. Um, Some of us are blessed intellectually with creativity, with insight, with the ability to see circumstances and situations in different ways um, and see what God is wanting to do in a particular area. Perhaps those are your gifts. Uh, Maybe your gifts are physical. Maybe you have like time and energy and strength to do stuff. And so you can go to work in service to God and others. I saw a little little meme last week that said, um, y'all have fun in your 20s, 30s, and 40s, because when your 50s come, the check engine light's going to kick on. (laughs) So, if your check engine light hasn't kicked on yet, maybe you have some physical gifts that you can use to bless other people. Maybe it's as simple as an arm to lean on on the way out from church. Maybe it's helping somebody carry the groceries into the house. They don't have to be crazy things, but what are the gifts God has given you? 
Um, maybe they're relational gifts. We live in a small town, a small community. If you want to see something happen or for something to, to get done, who you know is important. Right? And so developing those relationships over a lifetime, if you've lived here your whole life, you have some gifts inherent to those relationships that you can use to bless others. And some of us have spiritual gifts, wisdom, uh, an anointing of the Spirit, uh, discernment, particular charism of leadership, like Moses was given. Maybe like Aaron, you can speak well. Or maybe like Moses, you don't think you can, but you can do other things. You can enter into the courts um, and confront evil. We all have different gifts. I, th I think, you know, that's sort of a broad overview. But, you know, I think of, um, I think of Judy Marshall in particular. Have, have you ever seen one of her quilts? If you haven't, you should. Um, have you ever eaten anything she's baked? Um, if you haven't, you should. Uh, and you know what she does with that? Well, she bakes bread for the teller at the bank she has befriended. She bakes bread for the vet who cares for her dog. Uh, she takes food around to people in our church and to the pastor. <clears throat> she makes quilts and gives them to people when babies are born um, she uses her gifts something she's talented with it's a skill she has she loves to do it she does it for other people um, I think of folks who have uh, made good use of their time anybody here not have to show up to a 9 to 5 anymore you got time you have time. How do you use that time? And I could, I could actually look around and, and name a lot of the ways that you guys do use time um, to bless other people. But we have, we have gifts that we can use. I encourage you to think about how you can do that in the week ahead. But here's my last thought. Sometimes we think of God's gifts as only those things that we can spend positively. Like having a positive financial outlook that you could share or having a gift or a skill that you can use to bless others or something fun or something good we think of gifts as good but another gift that we recognize here in God's giving of these gifts to Moses is that God takes even things that we would qualify as bad in our lives bad in our experience bad in the course of of our life and he doesn't waste them so yeah I want you to think about all the positive ways that you can bless others but I want you to ask yourself this question who better to lead a bunch of slaves into freedom than a former slave right who better to free someone who is bound whether in chains or in sin, than someone who knows the experience of being freed from those chains and from that sin. You see what's happening here. Who better to lead people out of Pharaoh's uh, deadly strike than a man who's already escaped it? Who better to shepherd God's people than a shepherd? Right? Who better to bring healing to someone who needs it than someone who's already been healed? Who better to care for those who cry out at the blood of the Nile than someone who knows it? 
and who floated down it in the beginning. Who better than Moses with all the struggle? Who better than you? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.